maybe something that not necessarily everyone follows, especially when they first start out because maybe they can't get agency debt that includes the renovations that are longer term. Maybe they're forced to get bridge loan. Maybe they're forced to do like a one-year hard money loan to get the deal done. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with $1 million to $100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing Enjoy this episode, and for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com, or to learn more about the Apartment Syndication School, go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hello, best of your listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Syndication School series, a free resource focused on the how-tos of apartment syndication. As always, I am your host. Theo Hicks. 
Each week, we air a syndication school episode that focuses on a specific aspect of the apartment syndication investment strategy. And for a lot of these episodes, we give away some free resources. These are free PDF how-to guides, PowerPoint presentation templates, Excel calculator templates, something to help you along your apartment syndication journey. So make sure you check out and download some of those free documents as well as some of the older syndication school episodes at syndicationschool.com. And today is going to be part two of a three-part series about some red flags that your passive investors should at least, the sophisticated ones, will be thinking about when reviewing one of your deals. So these are things that you want to proactively address when you're reviewing your underwriting, your investment summary. You want to ask yourself these questions to make sure that you aren't falling into these traps. If you are, you have a valid explanation as to why. So make sure you check out part one, which aired last week or If you're listening to this in the future, seven episodes ago, we start off by talking about some of the potential red flags for your market. So we talked about five of the 26 total red flags. Very quickly, those were a stagnant or shrinking population, stagnant or shrinking rental rates, a low absorption rate, not providing information on the neighborhood level or the sub-market level and just looking at the overall city or MSA. And then five would be the population demographic doesn't match the property. So the population age is mostly Gen Z or mostly baby boomers. And that's the population that's growing yet the property has got a bunch of high-tech bells and whistles and smaller units and not a lot of amenities that are conducive to baby boomers. So that really doesn't make any sense and would bring up some concern. So I would have a lot more detail on all five of those in the part one. So make sure you check that out today. We're going to talk about the next 10 or so red flags. And then next week we will conclude with part three. We'll wrap up the red flags. And so let's start off by talking about some of the business plan red flags. So your business plan is what you plan on doing after you take over the property. So to make sure that you're explaining it properly to your investors and that it's actually a good business plan, the first thing you want to make sure is that the property actually matches the business plan. So this is kind of similar to what I just talked about when I was summarizing part one, which is the population demographic, not meeting the property. Well, the property also needs to meet the business plan. So the property is either going to be a class A property, a class B property, a class C property, or a class D property. It's pretty subjective, but overall, it's based off of when it was built, what the rents are, what market it's located in, what types of amenities are offered, and the overall condition of the property. So we've done episodes on syndications in the past, going into specifics on those different metrics for class A, class B, class C. But the point is that the business plan, what you plan on doing needs to match that property. And so if you claim that this is going to be a class A investment, but the property has a lot of deferred maintenance or there are no amenities or the interiors are outdated, then this is obviously going to be a major red flag in the eyes of the passive investors, right? Because it's not actually a class A property. This might be a class C property or a class D property. As opposed to if you say you're buying a class C property, and you're going to renovate it and bring it up to class A, but then the property already is at class A, then that's going to be a problem. And so make sure that 
if you're discussing the property's condition, it actually matches what's actually occurring at the property. And the red flag number seven is kind of similar to this, which is making sure that it truly is a value add turnkey or distressed or opportunistic deal. So the business plan is actually possible on this type of property. And an example that Travis, my co-host on the Actively Passive Investing Show, talked about an example where he was looking at a deal where the operator was claiming to do a value add or they were going to go in there, do some renovations, update the amenities, and then increase the rents in order to increase the value of the property. But then Travis is reviewing the deal and it looks like it's a class A property that's completely renovated, completely fully rented out, up to market rates. So he was kind of confused and that was obviously a red flag because, well, no, there isn't a value at play if the property is already turnkey. Similarly, if they come to you and say, oh, we're going to do a turnkey investment strategy, we're going to buy the property and then it's just going to cash flow. And then after five, 10 years, we'll sell, you get your money back and have made whatever return over that five year, 10 year period. But then you look at the pictures and the investment summary and you see that the units don't even have granite countertops, don't have stainless steel appliances. There's no amenities available to the property at all. Well, that's not going to be a turnkey deal necessarily. So at least not a class A turnkey deal. So those are kind of extreme examples, but you kind of get the idea. If you are doing a value add deal, then there needs to be value to add to the property. If you're doing a distressed or opportunistic deal, then there needs to be a lot of value to add to the property. If you're doing a turnkey deal, then you're not going to be investing a lot of money into the renovations or deferred maintenance, right? That shouldn't be a thing for turnkey. So if you use one of these words, value add, turnkey, or distressed, and then elsewhere in the investment summary does not match up to that, then that's going to be a red flag to your investors. So make sure that it is truly a value add or it's truly a turnkey, or it's truly a distressed or opportunistic deal. So those are the business plan red flags, number six, number seven. Let's move on to the returns that are offered to your investors. And so you should have a page in your investment summary or multiple pages that explains the returns that go to class A investors if you only have one class or class A and class B investors. So what's some information that you want to make sure you're doing here? What are some things you want to avoid as well? So the first one, which is number eight on our list, a red flag would be you guaranteeing a return. So if the word guarantee appears anywhere in your investment summary, you need to delete that. You need to remove the word guarantee from your vocabulary when you are talking to investors because investing, there are no guarantees, right? You can't tell your investors, I guarantee you that you're going to get an 8% preferred return every single month, or I guarantee you that you're going to double your money in five years because number one, it's an impossible promise to keep. And a sophisticated investor is going to know that and be turned off by you using that language, even though it might seem on the surface to actually motivate and make people attracted to investing with you because they're saying, Oh yeah, I guarantee to make this money. Oh, well, yeah, just why not? But obviously that's not the case, especially for sophisticated investors. And secondarily, you could open yourself up to legal problems. There's a very well-known investor right now who has that issue where in his marketing on social media was using the words guarantee and when investors weren't getting that return, they ended up suing him. I think it was a miscommunication where they didn't understand what annualized cash and cash return meant and how it included this proceeds from sale. And so it wasn't like every single year you're going to make that much money. But at the end of the business plan, you're going to make 20% return overall. But regardless, now this person's facing legal issues as well, and his reputation might take a hit. So in order to avoid your reputation taking a hit, 
in order to avoid any legal issues with the SEC. Don't guarantee anything when you're investing. Now, you can present various ways that you're reducing risks, which we'll talk about in number nine. But the word isn't guaranteed. You're offering a preferred return. You're offering this return. This is the projected overall return you're going to get. Hence the category projected returns. So I think I've talked about that one enough. Number nine is not having a sensitivity analysis or not doing a sensitivity analysis. So the simplified cash flow calculator that we give out as a part of syndication school does not have a sensitivity analysis. And I'm not 100% sure if I talked about it or not yet. So I'll assume I didn't. And basically what a sensitivity analysis is, is when you adjust a couple or many assumptions you made when underwriting and then see how that affects the returns. Okay. So examples would be, you would do a worst case scenario, a base scenario, and then a best case scenario for each of these. And so what is the base scenario for the interest rate on the loan, which you're getting at closing? If it's adjustable, well, what's the highest it could go? Assuming you buy a cap. Okay, well, right now, this is not super relevant because interest rates are so low, but let's say interest rates are at 5% and you say, okay, well, maybe interest rates will drop down to 3% because two years ago, they were that low. Maybe they'll go back down. So best case scenario, it'll be 3%. So in that case, best case scenario, 3%, base case, 5 Maybe worst case, you bought a cap at 7% interest rate for the adjustable rate. You'll want to do a sensitivity analysis. See, okay, just based off of that one change, what are the new returns? And you can do something similar for things like your rental premiums after upgrading units. And so what's kind of a conservative estimate? What's worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? Same with exit cap rates, other income, really any assumption that you're making, uh, certain expense assumptions, other income assumptions. I think that's an exit cap rate, right? It's probably one of the bigger ones. Vacancy rates, anything that could potentially change, you want to pressure test and then determine what will the returns be. So you can say, hey, this is the worst case scenario of interest rate, vacancy, rent premiums, exit cap rates, other income, etc. And here are our return projections. Look, they're still good returns. Now we're projecting this base case scenario, but worst case scenario, here's what we still expect to happen. Again, not using the word guarantee, expect to have happen. That way, your investors have more confidence in you because you're saying, we're not creating these best case scenario assumptions. We actually have three different scenarios we're modeling out and we are assuming the middle one. And if the best case scenario happens, fantastic, you make more money. If the worst case scenario happens, you don't make the base case, but at least you'll have an understanding of what returns you'll receive if our assumptions don't come to fruition or if something happens to the market and these things go down or go up depending on which metric it is. So you don't need to include a full multiple pages in your investment summary of the sensitivity analysis. It could even be just a snippet of what the assumptions were for the best case, worst case scenario, and then the return results for each of those. And then if someone wants more information, make sure you have that readily available to provide to your investors. Because not everyone needs to see the full sensitivity analysis. The point is that you've done it, that you have it, and that you understand what the returns will be, what the cash flow will be if your assumptions are not as conservative as you think, or if something happens in the market that negatively impacts those. Okay, so we'll conclude with this episode with these next red flags are going to be debt red flags. So debt obviously is what you're going to use to cover the majority of the purchase costs. And it's also going to be one of your biggest ongoing expenses. Even though it's technically a non-operating expense, it still needs to be paid out before investors are paid. So what are some of the red flags to avoid here? 
first of all, which would be one of our three immutable laws of real estate investing, which is to secure long-term debt. So this is number 10 in our total list. And the total loan term must be at least two times the business plan. So by that, I mean, if the business plan is to do a turnkey deal and hold on to the property for five years and then sell, then the loan should be at least five years in length. If the plan is to do a value add and you expect it to take 24 months to complete that value add, then the loan should be at least four years. I think I misspoke. For the turnkey example, it should be 10 years if the plan is to hold on the deal for five years. For a distressed or opportunistic deal, again, maybe take three years to renovate everything to be fully stabilized, to renovate and then fully stabilize the deal. Well, then the loan term should be six years. And similarly, let's say you're doing a distressed deal and the plan is to refinance after two years and the first loan needs to be four years because it could be a sale. It could be at the end of some stabilization or it could be at a refinance. So whenever that first capital event is expected, the loan should be at least twice as long as that. And why is that? It's pretty obvious, but it gives you a cushion in case you are unable to complete your business plan in the projected time. And so let's say for some reason you projected to do the value add business plan 24 months and something happens, you underestimated the amount of money it would take to do the renovations and the time it would take to do the renovations. And maybe you overestimated how quickly you would be able to occupy all the units. So you projected 24 months, but it ended up taking 36 months. Well, if your loan was only a two-year or bridge loan, well, you're going to be in trouble (laughs) once that two-year mark comes around and you realize that your assumptions were off. So instead, if you project 24 months, the loan term should be at least four years. Now, this could still be a bridge loan and you could have the opportunity to add extensions, but overall, the total length should be at least 2x the business plan. And if it's not, then that's a problem. And again, this is probably one of the, I won't say controversial, maybe something that not necessarily everyone follows, especially when they first start out because maybe they can't get agency debt that includes the renovations that are longer term. Maybe they're forced to get bridge loan. Maybe they're forced to do like a one-year hard money loan to get the deal done. And that's still something you can do if you want to, but we would advise against it and hold fast to the 2X, the stabilization or business plan timeline. Next, number 11, not buying a cap on an adjustable interest rate loan. So I've already kind of talked about this. So your two options are a fixed interest rate or an adjustable interest rate. The adjustable interest rate usually adjusts each month. So depending on when you get the loan, if you don't buy a cap, the interest rate could go up indefinitely, right? Interest rates right now are historically low. What if in two years from now they're at 10%? Well, if you didn't buy a cap, your interest rate is going to be 10%. And that's obviously going to be a huge problem either way at a lot, if not all of your cash flow. Whereas you can pay a little bit extra money up front to buy a cap. That way you'll know for certain the highest it could go. And so again, you'll know for a certainty, and this is kind of a guarantee, of how high the interest rate could go. It cannot go past this cap. That way you can model that into your sensitivity analysis and know, okay, worst case scenario, this is how much money I'll be paying in debt service every month. Right? But if you don't buy that interest rate cap, a sophisticated investor will recognize that and probably want to avoid investing with you, especially since interest rates are so low right now. And then the last one we'll talk about today, number 12, is when you include the refinance or supplemental loan proceeds in the return projections. And so if you're doing an opportunistic distress deal or a value-add deal, one of the main advantages is all the equity that you've created that can be distributed to investors as pure profit. So that could be distributed at sale, or you might do a refinance once the deal is stabilized and do a brand new loan and pull equity out, 
or you might do a supplemental loan on top of the existing loan and have extra money that you use to either reinvest into the property or distribute to investors. So again, whenever this refinanced or supplemental loan occurs, then your investors might get a lump sum profit. Now, when you're going in to the deal, you kind of have an idea that based off of how long you expect it to take to stabilize and how much you expect to raise an operating income, and then maybe what the exit cap rate is going to be to determine a potential proceeds assumption to your investor, a million dollars, let's say. So let's say you're very eager, you're very zealous, you include that in your proceeds and say, in year two, we're going to give you half your equity back. Again, not guaranteed, but we expect to give you half your equity back. Well, what happens if that doesn't happen? What happens if you cannot refinance in one year or two years for a variety of different factors that may or may not be in your control? Well, you're not going to have happy investors. You're going to have a lot of investors saying, hey, you told me that I'd be making half my money in one year. You'd say, oh, well, I didn't say I guaranteed. I said I projected. Well, just don't include that in your return projections. Just create return projections based off of them not receiving equity back until sale. They're still going to get the same equity that was created, just not until sale. And then say, by the way, we plan on doing a refinance or we plan on doing a supplemental loan at the end of year, whatever, or at some point in the business plan. And we expect to distribute monies to you at that time, but we're not including that in our assumptions. That's just going to be icing on the cake or the cherry on top of the cupcake for you. And maybe put a picture of a cupcake in there. I'm just kidding about that part. But the whole point of all of these red flags is in general. And I think it's, it's very clear in this specific red flag is that your presentation to the investors needs to be as conservative as possible. You need to underpromise and overdeliver as opposed to over-promising and under-delivering, or even over-promising and over-delivering, right? The best case scenario is you under-promise and you over-deliver. Don't be tempted to over-promise because you want to get a lot of investors, right? Because the investors understand how this works. This is not like they're investing in stocks or in a savings account, right? This is a, a very sophisticated investment strategy. And the most investors need to be accredited. So they have an understanding of how investing works. So when you have conservative underwriting and then explain how you're conservative and here are all the potential areas that might potentially do better. And here's why we think that, but we're still assuming this conservative assumption and look how the returns are still meeting your return projections. That's kind of what you want to think about. And so all these red flags are things that are in a sense over-promising to your investors or are things that are really aggressive and that puts their capital at risk. So that concludes part two. Next week, hopefully, because I'm definitely a lot more long-winded than I thought it would be, we will complete the third and final part where we'll talk about some of the purchase and sales assumptions, red flags to avoid, pro forma red flags, rental and sales comparable red flags, and then other red flags. And now that I read that, probably it might end up being a four-part series here, folks. Uh, we'll see. I remember when I was doing the earlier syndication to Globus O's, I was like, oh, we're going to do a four-part series on how to qualify market. And then eight weeks later, I'm still I'm on part 10. And every week I'm just like, oh, I guess this is going to be a six-part series. Oh, it's going to be an eight-part series. Okay, now I promise you it'll be a 10-part series. So this will either be a three-part or a four-part series now that I've gotten to this point in the process. But anyways, make sure you check out part one. Make sure you mark your calendars for parts three and possibly part four. And make sure you check out some of the other syndications, global episodes we have about the how-tos of apartment syndications. Download those free documents. And until next week, have a best every day, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co 
forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Do you buy property worth over a million dollars? And are you missing huge income tax benefits? Cost segregation is one of the methods I use myself to lower taxes on our properties and increase the cash flow. Call Yona Wise with Madison Specs at 732-333-1477.